Welcome to The First Incision, a podcast from the Christian Medical Fellowship, where we explore topics at the interface of faith and healthcare that affect our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, Steve Fouch. Who am I? Why am I here? These are among the most important questions we shall ever ask, and our culture thinks it has the answers. Just look inside yourself, or you be you. Sounds good. Does it work? The CMS Junior Doctors' Conference in November 2022, Glyn Harrison, the Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Bristol, looked at what the scriptures have to say about identity. This is the second of Glyn's three talks from the conference. We'll be sharing Glyn's last talk in the very last podcast of 2022 next week. Well, um, great to to welcome uh, the folk who weren't here last night. We weren't to the relief of those who were, go through it all again, but uh, we'll try and recap on one or two of the points and bring them home as we go along. Now, the Bible has many different ways of helping us think about our identity in Christ. For example, we are the bride of Christ, loved by him from eternity. We are like sheep cared for by a shepherd. We are citizens under the governance of a king. But as we saw last night in his first epistle, the Apostle John takes us to the source and the summit of our identity in Christ. That we are, that we are children of God. And we saw how to be a child of God in the sense the apostle was teaching us here. It's not only about being adopted into his family, which we are. It is to be born of God himself. To be, in the original Greek word used in verse 29 there of chapter 2, begotten of him. And that is what we are, says the apostle in verse 1, chapter 3. And then to press it home, he repeats it again in the following verse with added emphasis. Now we are children of God. Not then, it's not some future prospect. Now we are children of God. That person sitting in this precise location, this body, on Saturday morning, the 12th of November, 2022. Yes, you, you are the child, a child, born of him, begotten of the creator of the worlds. He wanted you. Well, today, as I promised last night, we're going to take a closer look at some of the ideas around identity in the cultural waters we're swimming in. We're going to spend some time doing some cultural analysis, quite a bit of time, actually, um, and, and then return to think how we use this teaching of the apostle to help us live distinctively in this culture, okay? So how would you summarize what's going on in the world around us now? Here's what the American philosopher Michael Allen Fox thinks, quote, he says, we live in an age of self-obsession. Everywhere we look, he says, we encounter a preoccupation 
an absorption with self-interest, self-development, self-image, self-satisfaction, self-love, self-expression, self-esteem, self-compassion, self-fulfillment, self-help. The list goes on, he says. And he's on to something, isn't he? I think nothing captures the cultural zeitgeist quite so much as the phrase, I identify as. This phrase has entered the mainstream so rapidly, it's easy to forget that until yesterday, until recently, your identity was largely something that you were. You were a, a mum, a musician, a doctor, a Christian. Today, however, rather than being something, people identify as something. I identify as a woman. I identify as working class. I identify as pansexual. I identify. Now, of course, it's never been easy to answer the question, who am I? But today, the answer seems to be, I'm anything I want to be, anything I choose to be. This is the sovereign self, everybody. It's not just the self in search of self-improvement or self-esteem, self-worth. It is the self in search, in, indeed, in claim of sovereignty over itself, over reality, over God's creation. What did the serpent whisper in the ear of, of, of Eve? You shall be as gods. You shall be as God. I identify as I have the right to invent, to reinvent, to define who I am. Of course, which may be fine, it may be fine, um, except the scale of our self absorption and the transitoriness of identity today. You know, I may identify as pansexual, but who knows what it will be tomorrow. The transinstruments, and perhaps some of the issues we're witnessing in mental health today, suggest that this project, everybody, I identify project, isn't going especially well. So here's how I'm going to approach this as we try to grapple with what's going on around us. First, I'm going to define my terms. You'd be amazed how many sermons and talks on self on identity, you can listen to, and nobody actually says, what do you mean by this term? How are you defining it? So I'll have a go at that. At least I'll tell you how I'm going to be using the term so we have a shared understanding today. And then second, I'm going to ask how we got here to this cultural moment that we're sitting in. What's been the main strands in the history of ideas that led us to this point? And then third, if today's culture of self-invention, this is a bit of a spoiler everybody if, if this culture of self-invention turns out to be the problem rather than the solution how does john's teaching here help us to live distinctively and prophetically and prophetically how does it help us to recover our confidence again in what we believe and who we are to live in this world and to love serve those around us so first definitions, what is personal identity? Well, we know that we human beings are endowed with extraordinary abilities to build mental concepts, maps, 
of the world around us. That is abstract summaries of the world in our heads. But we also possess the ability to build concepts of ourselves internally. For example, ideas such as I am a kind and thoughtful person or I'm a reliable, conscientious doctor. A personal identity then is simply that. It's a self-concept. It's the idea we hold of ourselves in our minds. The best way to think about how we structure this self-concept is as a story, a narrative. Um, philosophers, um, Alistair McIntyre, for example, in Oxford, speaks of human beings as narrative animals. We are storytelling creatures. And you know, we tell the story of me as well, consciously and subconsciously in our minds we put together the bit different bits of our our story our background our job our personality our faith to build a narrative a story of ourselves so in sum identity is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and it tends to comprise the headlines that summarize and characterize that story so, of course, the details of the story are constantly evolving, aren't they? Your, your self-concept is different today from what it was five years ago. You're now doctors, and that's reshaped some of the headline of how you see yourself. And it tends to be a gradually evolving process. But, of course, sometimes it can take sudden and dramatic shifts, as Paul Saul, the Hebrew, discovered as he encounters Christ on the road to Damascus and becomes Paul the Apostle, called by God, you see. A dramatic and sudden shift of narrative. And people coming on weekends like this sometimes can experience a dramatic and sudden incursion of the Spirit of God into their lives in ways which turn them upside down and retell their story almost from the beginning. But usually, generally, it's a slow evolution because we need the slowness and the relative stability over time to give coherence to our lives, to give stability to our sense of self. And, and it's that stability and coherence that allows us to set goals and work toward them. It's not much use setting a goal if tomorrow you're going to be somebody different, because now you're going to have to maybe think of a different goal, you see. And so this sense of stability, and order in the self is important to our self-understanding. So our personal identity is our self-concept, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. What's your story, I wonder? Okay, so second question. How do we get to some of the ideas that we're swirling around in our culture today, peaking in I identify as... Well, in the past, a self-concept um, largely drew on, on what we can think of as three sources of the self, three areas. We looked outwards to our family, our circumstances, our background, the tradition that we inherit. For example, a few centuries ago, I might have said, hey, I'm Glenn Harrison. That is, I'm Harry's son, you know? 
And, and we Harrisons have lived here and farmed the land of North Lincolnshire for generations. I'd look outwards and that would be a big part of the foundation of my story. And then second, we, we, we look inwards as well in search of our strengths, our passions, our desires, our gifts. You know, if there's one thing that makes me a Harrison, I might have said, it's my passion for farming. I love it. Can't wait to get up in the morning, breathe the fresh air and till the land and feel the soil. And third, we looked upwards for transcendent sources of meaning and significance that, that frame everything else about our lives. Give meaning to it. You, you, know, you should see how we do Harris, uh, harvest in the Harrison family. Bigger than Christmas because we live our whole lives under the watchful eye of the creator of all things in utter dependency on him. And so you see, the Harrisons put together their story from outside themselves, inside. But the whole thing was framed by a transcendent narrative a transcendent source of the self. They looked up as well. Now, this pattern was what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who's very much of the moment, by the way, Charles Taylor. This pattern was what Charles Taylor calls, he's a Catholic philosopher, Canadian. It's what he calls the poorer self. This, this was the poorer self, a self open to the world, open to the transcendent, weaving together information from these different stories, framed by the transcendent, by a source of self that comes from beyond ourselves, you see. Today, however, he says, something has changed. What seems to be happening when we say, I identify as, is that regardless of the outward realities that may have shaped my life, what I inherit, what's gone before. Regardless of the supposed transcendent realities, sources of meaning and purpose, how God may see me if he even exists. Regardless of those things, I get to tell my story in any way I want. We've become what Charles Taylor calls buffered selves. The buffered self is cut off cut off from tradition and the past and what may have helped shape me, but deeply and most importantly, cut off from the transcendent and anything from beyond the resources that I find within little old me that might help give meaning and purpose, destiny to my life. A self buffered against all that might threaten its sovereignty. You shall be as gods. And in its most extreme iterations, the self that says if reality doesn't line up with what I assert, it's reality that needs to change, not me. So what lies behind this shift? Actually, a number of cultural trends. I want to focus on the history of ideas. And to do the job properly, we'd need to go right back to Gnosticism that, that rings a bell here, doesn't it? Escape from the body, from, from the world of reality into an inner world of transcendent secrets. But we should acknowledge the influence of philosophers and thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, Karl Marx, Sartre, Michael Foucault. Uh, and if you want to dig into this, I'd really recommend Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. 
I, I was privileged to listen to him on Thursday night. He's a brilliant mind uh, in, in the States, a great analysis of culture, historian, philosopher. And lucky for us, he's recently released a dummies version of that book. Uh, and it's called, anyway, Google Carl Truman in Amazon. You'll see his most recent version. I think Strange New World. That's what it is. I'd really recommend that if you want to do a bit of a bit of digging around in the philosophy here. But we're going to do a bit of digging around just now. But don't worry. It's me doing it. So it's not going to be particularly high order philosophy. <laughs> but I want to just focus on one philosopher, the German Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, the son of a 19th century German Lutheran pastor, born with a huge intellect incredible intellect and a rather odd personality. Indeed, he spent the last decade of his life in a psychiatric institution, psychotic. He made very little impact in his time, and yet I tell you, he is, he is on the streets today, his thinking. After rejecting his parents' religion, the young Nietzsche eventually became one of the great atheistic philosophers of the 19th century. One of his most famous phrases, you must have heard it, God is dead, he said. He remains dead and we have killed him. What he meant by that was that the ideas unleashed in the Enlightenment, that science and scientism explains everything about the world, killed off God. And he says, we have to face that, you see. But here's the thing, everybody, it wasn't Nietzsche's atheism, actually, that, that makes him so important to our thinking. There were backs of atheistic philosophers around at the time. It was almost de rigueur to be atheist. No, no, Nietzsche stands out because more than any other, he was ready to embrace the implications of atheism. God is dead and we killed him. Isn't a cry of victory? so much as a cry of anguish. Nietzsche understood you can't get rid of God, but keep the values that rest on him for their validity and authority. If there's no God, there can be no objective values, he argued. If there's no God, there's no court of appeal to adjudicate between your truth and her truth and his truth. There is no foundation for human experience, no absolutes, no a priori, no universal, no objective truth. It's just you, buffered little you. You're on your own. And there's your ideas and there's other people's ideas and the ideas that make it to the top of the heap are simply the ones in the hands of the people with the power, he said, to get them there. When you've killed God, he said, quote, that's all there is, power. Quote, the world itself, he said, is the will to power, unquote. Quote, and nothing else, unquote. So turning to us here this morning, he would ask, what then are you if all you do is you submit yourself to whoever happens to hold power over you? Get off your backside. You're a nothing. Rise up. Be a something to live a significant life, he said. You must, quote, will your own power, unquote. You be you, he said, quote, you should become the person you are. Hmm. 
Sound familiar? Friends across the West, Nietzsche's everywhere on our streets. Don't you tell me who I am. Don't, don't tell me what I must do. I get to decide. And if reality doesn't line up with my choices, reality changes, not me. My body doesn't line up with what I feel about myself, and I decide I want to do with myself, then my body needs to change, not me. My body has no authority over me. And if you don't line up with what I feel about myself, then we will cancel you. Power. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Who sang that? Elsa. Yes, and we're singing along with her already, aren't we? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am my own experiment, said Madonna. I am my own work of art. And to the modern mind, what not to like, you shall be as gods. And so you see, as we survey this world of the buffered self, the $64,000 question is, does it work? Isn't it? It's what we ought to be asking and feeling bold and confident enough to begin to ask, is it working? Have nearly half a century over which this philosophy has come to dominate our culture. Is our mental health improving? Are relationships more stable, rewarding? Are children growing up with a sense of inner poised, confident youngsters eager to get out and make something of the world? Across the West, mental health issues are on the rise, especially anxiety and self-harm, especially among the young. People's sex lives are no better. In fact, the data unequivocally show that year on year, people in the age bracket 16 to 45 are having less sexual intercourse per month than before. It's falling. Why, says Professor Spiegelhalter of Cambridge, if the graph carries on as it is, if it carries on as it is, he said, no one will be having any sex at all by the year 2040. Now, he's a statistician, and I'm an epidemiologist, and both of us know that you should never extrapolate graphs like that. <laughs> But there's something there, isn't it? A revolution that promised more, delivering less. And that's the way the devil, evil powers work. They <laughs> promise more and more, but deliver less and less. Until as you sell out to them, they have everything. You have nothing. Nothing. Buffered little selves. And loneliness is on the increase, unequivocally so, especially among the young. Now, of course, these negative social trends can't be blamed in any simple causal relationship on buffered selves, self-invention. But my point is that it's really hard, folks, to unearth the mental health benefits this philosophy claims to produce. Indeed, there are plausible reasons to believe it does more harm than good. Let me highlight two or three reasons why I think this is the case, why they're actually harmful. First, there's the common sense argument. Look inside yourself. You know, well, when I look inside myself, I mean, what do you see when you look in? When I look inside myself, I do see some real strengths, some real gifts, some real achievements. Things I offer to God, and I think he's pleased, and I really do see that. I see a dark side as well. 
I detect a remarkable inbuilt capacity for deception of myself and others, mechanisms which protect me from the truth about myself. And I detect some things that have their roots in hell. So yes, we need self-acceptance in the sense of embracing the reality of who we are, because you can't do anything with what we are until we embrace the reality and accept it. But what do we do with what we find? That's the question. And, you know, I, I sold my car um, about uh, three years ago. And I, I, w- I went to one of these, we, we buy any car things, you know, and they promise you like zillions for this battered old car. And then when they look at it, you know, you go home with <laughs> tuppence. And um, I, I, I was beaten down by this uh, young chap, let's call him Alfredo. Uh, and... Uh, he was very pleased with himself at the end as, as he was preparing to, to, to get the check ready, uh, the small check ready, uh, and ra- typing this up in, in his system. Um, and, uh, and I just got chatting to him, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, always asking people about themselves. And I said, so how do you get, you know, because you're, you're Eastern Europe or, you know, he said, yeah, I came here a couple of years ago and he told me where he was from. And so I said, what brought you to the UK? He said, well, I've got a brother here. I said, what, you've got a project together? He said, no, actually, I don't see much, I suppose. And I said, so what, what, what brought you here? And he said, well, to be honest, I think I came to find myself. And, um, and then I, I, I said, but what happens if when you've found yourself, you don't like what you see? And he said, you got time for a coffee. <laughs> you got time for a coffee. You be you. See, it's a phrase that lifts us up in expectation, but then leaves us dangling in the wind, cut off from the transcendent, consigns us to a treadmill of endless, ultimately groundless self-making. All we have is the resources from within our own buffered little lives just the common sense argument but then there's the evidence from research into self-esteem you know folks we recognize rightly that having a sense of basic self-worth is important to our well-being but evidence is accumulating that simply encouraging people to identify themselves as worthy which is what self-esteem is doesn't work In fact, it weakens their self-worth rather than strengthening it. I could talk about the work of Joanna Wood of of Ontario, Hamilton, Ontario, a psychologist there. And I'll just summarize one of her projects. She compared two groups and she divided two groups of subjects randomly assigned into two subgroups on the basis of their score on various baseline assessments, particularly their, self, their sense of self-worth at the time, the, their score on the self-esteem scale, and various other measures of anxiety and depression. And then group A, she tasked with attempting to boost their self-worth by redefining themselves as worthy. So uh, they had to chant, I am a lovable person. For 20 minutes, you know, they, they had 20 minutes selfie quiet time every day. I am a lovable person. And then ponder all the different ways in which they were worthy and lovable to a set program. The other group, 
um, they 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 actually got a similar statement, but but they were asked to to meditate on how this was true of them and how not true of them. So how did subjects feel at the end of their tasks? Well, the people who were trying so hard to be a lovable person at the end of the study had lower mood than at the beginning, okay? And the same occurred for self-esteem itself. Those who already had a low sense of self-worth felt even lower at the end of telling themselves how lovable they were. And Joanna Wood summarized her findings. She said the people who already have high self-worth feel a little better at the end of this. You know, if you're Donald Trump, you feel even better after saying, I'm a lovable person, and you go on your own sweet way. But she says the people with those self, this backfires for the people who need it most. Why? Because it's just your own propaganda. It's the buffered self looking with inside itself, saying, yeah, I'm a lovable person, with no foundation for that fact. No reality for it, because we're not always lovable. And if you truly accept yourself, you'd know that. And that's what the Christian gospel says. It says, yes, accept yourself. You're a sinner, as well as a person of grandeur and beauty and, and worth, because you may have made in the image of God. But as a sinner, you now spoiled that image and defaced it. So accept yourself, but now open your heart to the transcendent, to a source beyond you. And so look, everybody, if attempts to redefine the worth of the self by simple assertion falter so badly, it seems pretty reasonable to hypothesize that attempts to redefine yourself aren't going to fare particularly well either. By analogy to self-esteem, it, it's going to produce weaker, less stable, rather than more stable versions of ourselves. Could this be why? Especially on university campuses, people can seem so fragile and in need of protection. You see, could this be why we, we're witnessing the demand for safe spaces? You know, the buffered self seems to be easily wounded, weak. Fragile. It demands the right not to be offended. And then my final argument, my third, a very brief argument, why today's culture of selfism is perhaps contributing to the rise of mental health issues is drawn from the work on the psychological benefits of what's called self-concept clarity. Self-concept clarity refers to the extent to which people have a clear view of who they are indicated by interests and viewpoints that remain stable over time. And early psychological studies suggest that people with high levels of self-concept clarity report higher self-worth, together with lower levels of anxiety and stress. Now, these are only correlations. We don't know whether this is a causal relationship. But, but if it did turn out to be causal, then we can see how contemporary confusion around identity fueled by the social media and environment bombarding us with image of better versions of ourselves may well be one key factor in understanding the rise of mental health issues today. John wants us to be clear. This is what we are. Self-concept clarity. You see, he understands instinctively the good of the gospel for human flourishing.
So my central point here is that mantras of the buffered self just need to look inside yourself. You be you or you be whatever. Paradoxically, produce hollowed out, weakened selves, intensely vulnerable to the pressures of social media and consumerism and influencers. Why, for goodness sake, we're so confident, do we want to be influenced? Why do we follow these people? It's because we're so weak inside, we're looking for anything that'll give us a better version of ourselves, whilst denying that it can, because it can only find within myself. So everybody, I want to suggest to you this morning, it's time for us to be bold as Christians. It's time to grasp the nettle, stand up for what we believe, because what we have been given is for the life of the world. It's for flourishing. To tell the world, you don't have to go looking for your identity from within. Oh, guys, so, so thin. Ephemeral, you? Identity. Cutting yourself off from, from, from the God of the world who reaches into your life and wants to make something of your life. We don't have to go looking amongst our peers for opinion formers and influencers and the people pulling the levers of our consumerist society. Be bold, folks. We have a better story. Look up. For as many as received him, they too shall be called children of God. That is what we are returning to our passage, insists John in verse 1. And to flourish is to live in harmony with what we are. Which brings us back to this passage. For, for we Christians, our identity is not rooted in our achievements or our status, which I'll talk about tomorrow in more details. Because if it's not rooted in our achievements, we do have to think about, well, how do I think about my achievements then? Okay, so we'll come back to that tomorrow. I want to be even more practical tomorrow. So it's not rooted in us. It is not discovered or searched out from deep within. It is given us. It is made by the Spirit of God himself who has sired us, fathered us to be a people for himself. That is what you are. Clarity of your concept, says John. Now, be who you are. Live lives that anticipate the full reality of that. And what does that look like? Verse 2. Looks like Jesus. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's the trajectory we're on. That's the work we're embarked on. That's what we have to anticipate now to look like Jesus. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, of course, that creation itself groans in anticipation of this final revealing of those who will finally look fully like Jesus, doesn't he? But just before we finish, I just want to pick up in the end of verse 1 there, one other point that John feels he needs to address because it's as if he's reading our minds just now, or the minds of one or two of you here. And it's this. If this is so good, 
if it's so big and important, why isn't anybody out there taking in notes of us? You know, children of God. Um, you know, <laughs> um, the church bell's ringing out this morning, but people carry on driving right past. Better things to do. I don't think the people on my ward you're thinking have been particularly wild by what they've seen of me. Wow, child of God. Doing my doing my PR. <laughs> so why don't people see a child of the living God? Because says John, there it is. Verse one, the reason the world does not know us, didn't know him. Do you think that when they rejected the savior of the world, when God himself moved among us, do you think they'll see his children? By implication, he's seeing, saying, say they will reject you as they rejected him, which strengthens his underlying point that we started with. Continue in him. Hold firm. Hold fast to your faith. That's what he wants us to do. That's what he wants this great doctrine of what we are to buttress who we are. People who persevere in anticipation of the day when all that we truly are will be finally revealed and all of creation will be renewed with the renewal of our bodies. You know, um, about 2,000 years ago, it was actually it was AD 198, a little group of Christians were uh, led out before the Roman emperor, before the Roman uh, consul. His name was Saturninus, and we're in Carthage, North Africa, AD 198. And this little group of Christians, six men, no, five men, and sorry, seven men and five women, uh, he wasn't a cruel man, actually, from what it seems from the records we have. And there's quite good records of this occasion. He wasn't a cruel man. He actually just wanted to get through the business, get these people home. So he said, look, let's just bow the knee to Caesar. You, you, you accept Caesar as Lord. And then we all go home. It's all we have to do. So why don't we just everybody get on with it? And then we go home. And that was what he put to them. And, and one or two of them spoke. And then a woman called Secunda stepped forward. And we don't know much about her. I, I sometimes wonder, did she have kids at home? Was she just 17, 18? Um, or was she a professional woman? Was she a servant? We don't know. But we know her name, Secunda. And we know what she said. She said, I am a Christian. I must be what I am. Do you remember what we said yesterday? Develop your self-understanding who you are from what you are. She'd heard that. She understood it. I must be what I am. Jesus is Lord. And she was taken out with the other 11 and they hacked away at them until she was dead with swords. And friends, we stand on the shoulders of giants. People in the past who, who, who stood, little people like Secunda. And now we bottle out 
And we're frightened for our jobs and our careers and our prospects and our reputation. So we keep quiet and we let somebody else take the heat. Now, of course, all of this has to be done gently with love, with love as our first imperative for those around us. But at the end of the day, what we've been given here is for the life of the world. And we have to share it. We have to be bold. We have to be, because now it's our turn, what we are, children of the living God. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to CMF's First Incision podcast. In the next edition of the podcast, we'll share the last of Glenn Harrison's Bible talks from the 2022 CMF Junior Doctors Conference. You can also check out the videos of Glynn's talks on the official CMF TV YouTube channel. The link for that will be in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast and like what you've heard, you can subscribe through all the usual podcast apps and feeds. Do check out our back catalogue of episodes. We've been running this podcast since July of 2019, so we've covered pretty much everything in that time. Um, We've looked at everything from euthanasia to parish nursing to um, COVID vaccines and many other topics in between. If you can, please take a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast on your chosen app. In addition to being helpful to us, it also helps other people to discover the podcast. So until next week, Stay safe and take care.